To keep Historian's Podcast on the internet, please donate by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com, and thank you very much. Hi, this is David Brooks from Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site. We're going to be talking about how Killboy was here, the Erie Canal Balladeer. David Brooks is the education guy at Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site. Your title's more formal than that. Uh, What is it? Uh, Yeah, I I go with education director uh, here at Schoharie Crossing. And maybe a brief word as we start about what is Schoharie uh, Crossing. Uh, It really is a crossing of the Schoharie Creek by the Erie Canal. Schoharie Crossing is a New York State historic site, and we are predominantly an Erie Canal site, talking about the original Erie Canal crossing through the creek, and then we're really well known for the remains of the Schoharie Creek Aqueduct, where the canal crossed over the creek. Um, And I also like to kind of put it in the context, we're also a location in which cultures had crossed paths, uh, even before with Fort Hunter being here and the Mohawk Village as well. And you also have a lively uh, interest in a history of the Erie Canal, and that's what uh, this story is today about a family named Kilboy. But uh, if I could make another detour, if you will, when you first started gathering information on this topic or found out about the Kilboy family, an- another word came to mind, which was Kilroy. We do a lot more than just specifically Schoharie Crossing stuff here. Obviously, the Erie Canal is a is a system, it's a network, so there's a lot to explore all along that, and I've been doing research into an unrelated topic and came across on the Library of Congress, a WPA project that talked about a Tom Kilboy and how he had sat down with um, somebody from the U.S. Work Progress Administration and kind of gave him some insights into the Erie Canal in the Waterville, the West Troy area, uh, and the side cut, the infamous side cut area uh, of the canal. And so that really spurred this interest. And I was immediately hooked by Kilboy because my mind went to Kilroy. And the <laughs> famous Kilroy was here. Uh, so it seemed like an obvious play on that name. But, and that was a phrase that was written on many places in, in Europe, let's say, uh, during World War II, that Kilroy was here. Yeah, it became uh, a very well-known, I guess in modern terms, sort of the meme of its day, uh, a little drawing with a, a guy's nose poking over maybe a fence line or, or the bunker, and uh, Kilroy was here was written all over things that, that managed to be in far-flung places of Europe and, and even in the Pacific, uh, sort of greeting soldiers when they made their landings or, or got into um, enemy-occupied territory. But we're talking not about Kilroy, but about Killboy. And uh, let's uh, start the story. I read uh, a piece that you wrote about it for uh, the New York uh, Almanac, and you kind of started to explain this. Uh, Thomas Killboy was one of the Killboys who figures in the story, and he was discovered, if you will, or found uh, by a, uh, a writer who was well, really working for the for the federal government. Yeah, so as part of that um, WPA project, it, it was a sort of a Great Depression work program in which historians, teachers, other writers, and even librarians were given work by going out and finding, you know, interesting people or interesting things about the culture of humanity in America. 
you know, folk tales and music and and parts of bygone eras, sort of a way to, you know, put them back to work, but also develop in the collection for the Library of Congress this sort of story of America. Um, and so this uh, gentleman, R.P. Gray, had been going around in the capital region and had heard about this guy that was, you know, well-known in that sidecut area and along the canal as a great singer and how he had a towing company uh, for uh, horses and mules to tow barges in that area. And so he set out on that quest, and it actually wound up taking um, him discussing with the police and actually the Department of Health uh, to discover uh, where the apartment was on Broadway in West Troy, uh, where Tom Kilboy was living at the time. Mm. And West Troy has now got a different name, right? Yeah, it's known as Watervliet now. So uh, some of the locations that, that in that article that I wrote, uh, Broadway, or um, a little bit later, I might make a reference to Second Ave and Twenty Third uh, Street. That those are all places in Watervliet that are that are can be kind of well known to perhaps some of the listeners. Mm. So. Uh, this uh, gentleman who was working for the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, uh, R.P. Gray, he finally found a Tom Kilboy, and how did he did that by interviewing the police? Yeah, so he, he wound up working through the the police department and Department of Health. So he found the apartment. He goes to the apartment, and you know that that good old fashioned, literally, where you would walk up on somebody's doorstep and knock on the door to actually talk to somebody. Turns out that at that point. Tom is a little bit deaf, and so the neighbor helps out. They get inside, and Gray tells Kilboy what he's there for, and immediately he is given a rendition with arms outstretched of 15 years on the Erie Canal. (laughs) Wow, because that's what Tom Kilboy used to do when there was an Erie Canal. Right, right. So he had had spent pretty much his entire life uh, working on the canal. Uh, He had a very short-lived schooling up to about the age of 12, he'd attended the brothers' school. There's some gaps in the story, but essentially involving one of the teachers and some chewing gum, and uh, Tom no longer attended that school. But he would go on to work for his father. His father was Captain John Kilboy, mm-hmm. uh, and he owned a towing company. Tom worked for that company and eventually would start his own towing company along uh, particularly the side cut, which is a, a section of locks that connect to the Hudson River from the Erie, and also there's the Champlain Canal Junta in that area. So there's a massive amount of barges that are trying to get through either on the Erie or to the Hudson or even up on the Champlain. Uh, so a lot of times captains or barge companies would hire different teams of horses and mules to tow themselves in that area, kind of save their own stock. So they would hire a, a towing company to help them out. Now, I'm maybe a little confused by that. The they would tow what? They would tow barges, or are they towing over land? Nope, those are those are the barges. So there's a there's a series, particularly the 16s in the the Cohoes area. Um, there's a a great interview that you had done with Michael Barrett a few mm-hmm. years back, where he talked about the 16s of Cohoes, and it's a notorious Barbary coast of the Erie Canal. To tow those barges through that, it was very labor intensive, particularly on those horses and mules, because you're either fighting part of the current or, um, you know, it's just, it, it saves your own your own animals, sort of like uh, driving into a city and then using public transportation. Maybe I'm wrong, and you studied the Erie uh, Canal, 
But when it was the Erie Canal, and by that I mean when it was the dug ditch going across the state in large in large part, you know, uh, as opposed to using the Mohawk River in, in our area, the canal, let's say, at Skehari Crossing, that might have been pretty exciting, but it wasn't as exciting as the side cut, was it? Correct, yes. Yeah. So the side cut winds up being particularly because it is that location where multiple, it's, it's sort of a, a major intersection if you're, uh, you know, in Albany, let's say, and you come across where you're trying to get out near the, the arena and you're on highways, and it, it winds up being uh, full of bars and saloons and music joints, and there's you know, prostitution halls and, you know, stores, and, but you have thousands of, of people that are kind of living in the area, working in the area, and even more thousands that are coming through. It's a very transient space with those boatmen. Uh, they're coming through, and oftentimes they're not getting paid until either they're coming up the Hudson and they're getting paid in Albany, or they're coming from Buffalo, perhaps, and not getting paid till they get into that that uh, Albany or that West Troy Waterville area. Um, so they're flush with money um, after having put in, you know, maybe seven, ten days of hard work. They're looking to spend it, and most right. of the time on on ill vices. Uh, well, I do remember that interview with the gentleman from the, about the Hudson Mohawk. Industrial Gateway, it, it was the most like a, well, you've described this as most like a port. It's like maybe the port of uh, New York would, would be something uh, like it with ships coming from around the world. Here there are ships coming from Buffalo and from down in New York, but there's a lot of them, or a lot of these barges and mules and horses and people. Yeah, it was extremely congested. It's off, It was noted uh, oftentimes you can even, in that area, walk across the the Hudson River just by stepping from deck and deck of the barges. They, they had to conquer all these obstacles in the Erie Canal. Like your historic site is at one of them. The, there's, there's this fast-moving creek that's going underneath the canal because they build an aqueduct and they actually send the, the boats over the canal eventually. Uh, where the Hudson or the canal eventually enters the Hudson, you've got the, the Cohoes Falls, which is still there today, of course. You know, it's a natural wonder. It's kind of like Niagara Falls. They had to get around that. Wasn't that the big big problem? Yeah, and that that's what winds up with the 16s, that that very small stretch uh, in distance requires so many locks to put you higher or lower in elevation on the canal. And that's, you know... It, the, the easy way for businesses to establish themselves because they know there's going to be a congestion of these barges, um, and that means that there will be a lot of people there. There's going to be a lot of uh, opportunities for people to spend their money. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to perhaps lose their lives or their money um, in different ways. There's a lot of drowning instances or um, you know, horses or mules because of that rigorous having to change off to be able to lock through there's a lot of them winding up in the water uh, as well. So, and, and again, with that side cut being even more congested because now you have another set of locks to get off the canal to go into the side cut, further backing up of traffic. I, I kind of like in it to, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to make it to Albany and there's, a, there's an issue on the exit and how much congestion will wind mm-hmm. up happening behind that, um, which is a little bit easier now the way that the tolls are being collected. There's also the, the added component in the Waterville area in, in terms of that and very connected to the idea of the toll booth is that Waterville was actually a location of one of the waylocks 
So a lot of these barges that are coming through uh, are having to pay their tolls there. So that adds to that congestion and having to wait for that waylock building. That sort of reminds me of uh, you see on the highway, places where they weigh trucks. Exactly. Why do they call it the side cut? That's the part of the canal that's going off, let's say, to the Champlain Canal? Yeah, well, there's a there's a side cut for the Champlain, and there's a side cut that is just sort of a, uh, an easier connection from the canal to the river uh, that allows those boats to kind of come through instead of going through that full line of the system. So why wouldn't boats always take that easy one? Uh, well, many of them would. Uh, it also depends on what you're carrying, what kind of freight, or, or where your final destination would be. Um, Particularly, uh, you mentioned ports, the Port of Albany, as we might know it today. You know, in that area was a a large lumber district. Um, So particularly if you're just trying to make your your way through um, and you don't have to go that way, uh, you're you're saving a little bit of time and perhaps um, the expense. Mm. And again, I don't want to go too far afield or uh, put you on the spot, but what about people? Um, I presume when... The Erie Canal boats, the packet boats, are going through Schoharie Crossing. There are some boats that have people on them. I mean, do we still have people uh, going, being transported? Or by then, have they gotten off the boats and taken a stagecoach or something the rest of the way? Yeah, so a lot of this, um, particularly with with this era um, and the more of the notorious sidecar, um, there were people that were coming in as almost tourists to the area. You know, they kind of heard about it. This is after even like the Klondike period, so it sort of was noted in a 1935 Times Record article that you know it was it was kind of a destination for people. But in this later part of the 1800s and early 20th century, a lot of the traffic that was um, passengers, um, they could be a cheap fare, but for the most part, yeah, they were going on to rail lines at that point. Uh, you have a transcontinental railroad. And, uh, and also a great network in the northeast for people to go through. Um, but there were still people. There was the people that were working on the barges, and there were occasionally these passengers. Um, and you see particularly the passengers that would be happening to be on the canal in this area, probably you know, recent immigrants that are trying to find a way to, to work and get transportation. Um, mm. So maybe they're working on canal boats, and, and their destination could be the Midwest, uh, but they'll work for a season and then wind up stopping in Buffalo and trying to make their way uh, beyond toward Wisconsin or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to the Killboys, Thomas Killboy, the Erie Canal singer or balladeer. Uh, did he sing just in that area with the side cut and the 16 locks, or would he ever, let's say, come up your way up to uh, Schoharie Crossing? No, I, I hadn't come across anything of him traveling. It seems like primarily that because he also owned a towing company in this area and his brother had worked at, uh, as a towing company person as well, um, that his, his most of his life was really kind of set in that area of West Troy and around that side cut, um, you know, perhaps a little bit of traveling for family things. But he was well enough known in the, the that canal area of singing along the canal uh, because he also would pay money uh, for cigars and alcohol to give to barge captains and lock tenders. You know, I, I just kind of picture him walking around that community uh, along the canal, singing at any opportunity. It was full of saloons and bars. His brother had, for a period of time, owned one of them. 
So he's probably, you know, the communal sense of, you know, being, you know, a few drinks in at the local tavern or saloon um, and kind of leading the, the songs um, is kind of how I picture Tom. Now, Tom uh, survived. I mean, he, we're talking about him being interviewed in 1935, long after this era. But what happened to his father, Captain John Kilboy? So there's not a lot of great details um, to really say how he met his death, but it was a watery death, and it was definitely under some suspicious circumstances in 1887. Um, his father was well known also as, uh, you know, he was a, called Captain Tom, um, or I'm sorry, Captain John, and that uh, he had his own towing company. Um, the only thing that really is good evidence to suggest what occurred was that he didn't have his money fold when they pulled him out of the canal. He had drowned. Um, so when his body was recovered, he didn't have any money with him. So uh, the obvious conjecture would be that he was he was probably robbed and murdered. Mm, dear. And when was that? When did, or did you say? What, about, what was arrow? 1887. Yeah, so this was a few years after Tom had started his own transportation company um, and actually a, a couple years after uh, his brother was actually shot and killed in Cavanaugh Saloon. Uh, there was an ongoing feud that some of that family had with a few others, and uh, being the 16s and a rowdy bunch by all, um, they got into a fight, and Tom couldn't separate the two, and unfortunately uh, Nelson Saddlemeyer had shot his brother Edward in the back as he was running toward the door. Um, so Tom was experiencing you know, the, the death of his father and death of his brother within a few short years um, as well. Well, I mean, it kind of gives a certain meaning to what is their name, Killboy. Their people were killing some of them. Yeah, it, it, it lends really well to that, that rowdy, raucous, uh, you know, canaller nature. Um, but what I found really kind of interesting is the, the more I was going into this and, and finding out, you know, he's spending in what today's dollars would be, um, you know, almost $800 a day for liquor and cigars to keep his, his business running smoothly. You know, he's giving them to those barge captains so that he can get their business, and he's giving it to lock tenders so that, you know, you can kind of maybe get through the locks quicker uh, with your towing company, and, and that works really well if you're trying to keep your business going. Um, and it was said that he, he would stand in well with the lock tenders and other canalers. Um, every once in a while he had his own hiccup with, you know, losing a team of horses or, or mules into the uh, particularly near lock 14 but there's a few other things when i when i started doing greater research and this is where i kind of get to be a killed joy um because as i continued my research there's a lot of other um newspaper clippings and i had a hard time with census records that mention a gilboy a tom gilboy of west mm -hmm. troy and and I, I look into it more and more and there's there's actually very similar reports for John Gilboy and Tom Gilboy and a Josephine Gilboy that are being mentioned that are all the same information, just the difference in that name from different newspapers. To me, it becomes obvious that actually Tom Kilboy was Tom Gilboy okay. and that it's, in fact, the same man. Um, and this is some of this newer research that's kind of developed. And um, for the fact that it unfortunately kind of takes away the easy play on Kilroy, Yes, um, it's true. But once you know, and but searching that way opens up this new can. So one of the things I'd like to point out is that the research that you do, 
and you, you know these I'm, I'm used to seeing names being spelled differently entirely uh, particularly here in the Mohawk Valley you have a lot of uh, Palatine German names that you know there's there's different vowel combinations and stuff that get lost um, but this being that one letter difference which is probably because of an accent you know the the Kilboy or, or the Gilroy family most likely obviously coming from Ireland um, and so there's mm. a slight difference in that accent and so you know, the R.P. Gray is probably hearing Gilboy with more of a k sound and writes it down as mm-hmm. Killboy. But because mm-hmm. there's so many newspaper articles that also say Killboy, it's, it's a little bit of a nuanced thing, but there's more and more records that come up about Gilboy. And what I find interesting is there's some really interesting, and, and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as say overly redeeming, because I'm not trying to paint Tom as a bad human being. Uh, but, you know, in that era of the side cut and the violence and the nature of it, um, but come to find out he's also the guy that goes out during the winter and clears the snow from the ice that's in the canal so that fellow citizens and children can go ice skating. Well, that's a that's a nice touch. What does uh, R.P. Gray, the, the fellow that's interviewing a Tom Kilboy or, or Gilboy, um, how does he end his interview? So, so it the end of his interview uh, in his notes that he's talking about that um, he's getting husky in his voice, he's weary, he needs a drink. Tom sings a song of his own composing called I'm Flixo Grady. Um, and, and Gray even notes uh, that with a prideful emphasis, Tom sings, there goes Killboy, the handsome young man. Um, so it's a, that nice touch of, you know, it's, a, it's his own com- composition. He puts himself in the song and he's super proud of having worked on the canal uh, for for most of his life, um, and and that he would indeed be interested in having his songs recorded. And the plan would have been that R.P. Gray or another person from the WPA project would come out and actually record Tom singing. Uh, there's no evidence that that was ever actually happening. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, if people want to kind of get an idea of what that might have sounded like, there is actually on the Library of Congress recordings of C- Captain Pearl Nye, who was a captain on the Ohio and Erie Canal. Those are some of the old Lomax recordings from the 1930s, and they might get a sense of what it might have been like to hear Tom singing in a saloon. Yeah, it's too bad that they didn't, uh, in the 30s when they could do it, record uh, Tom uh, Kilboy because... That was done in other parts of the country, right? I mean, record companies, it's sort of, isn't that how the, uh, what was it, the Carter family was discovered? Right, and so that goes into that uh, really great emphasis on early American traditions, uh, particularly the Lomax is one of the, the, the whole family of Lomaxes would go out and record singers and musicians, whether it's, like you mentioned, Carters, or, or even earlier with Lead Belly. Uh, you know, there was a whole group of people that traveled into the Appalachian Mountains, into these little back hollows to, to record people with these, you know, these big, hefty recording reel-to-reel devices um, so that they could preserve that American sound. And uh, a lot of those do wind up, I shouldn't say a lot, there's, there's plenty of great ones up there on the Library of Congress for people to listen to. And I believe there's something like 14 different songs or maybe 16 songs that Captain Nye has up on there that are all these canal songs. Some of them go on for a while. There's multiple verses. Um, and so it's it's worth checking out to get kind of an idea of, of how it would have sounded. And 
I listened to all of those those nice songs, just kind of thinking to myself, are these the things that Tom would be singing in a bar someplace or, or out on a, a barge deck as he's uh, operating along the canal? Was Tom Kilboy at, at the end of his life, or do you know, was he poor, or did he have have a certain amount of money? Uh, no, well, R.P. Gray does mention that it's a respectable apartment. Um, it's It's down on Broadway, which is right around the corner from... 23rd Street in Waterville, uh, which is actually where the lock was that was closest to where Tom was living and working, where the lay, the Waylock building was, um, and it was actually in the location where he uh, was also noted in newspapers of having saved a couple of lives by jumping in to rescue people. Um, but I would say that he was fairly moderate. Well, he was uh, reportedly living with his daughter uh, in that apartment toward the end of his life. He was working for the city of Waterville doing, um, uh, you know, Department of Works type stuff. He was, he was actually filling in that section of canal, um, which is sort of the sad kind of twist on his story where he had made a living on this canal, and in his final years he's, he's working to fill that in. Um, and actually he passes away at the age of 80, in 1939, so it was actually in the evening of October 6th of 1939, uh, he was he was out for a walk and he stepped off the curb on the corner of 2nd Ave and 23rd Streets, and he was fatally struck by a car. So the added level of what I find you know sad irony, I suppose, if you want to call it irony, is that he becomes the victim of that new era of transportation, the automobile. Really? Oh my goodness! And that region or that section of the side cut and the 21 canal locks, that was no longer an exciting place by then. No, yeah, the the, the canal was being filled in, um, you know, the at that point in time, the Erie Canal, the barge canal system that still exists today, it's gone into the canalized river. Um, you have a different set of flight of five near Waterford to connect uh, the canal to the Hudson. Um, and so it, it wasn't the same, you know, there's still an industrialized area. There's still some of the, the textile mills in, in the Waterford Cohoes area as well. Um, it, it definitely had seen, you know, the, the passing of, uh, by, yeah, particularly by the 1930s, that anything that really kind of harkened into the canal era. 1935, newspaper article actually is inter there's uh, somebody interviewing Tom about that really kind of talks about how the youth of that day 1935 would not understand you know the the complexities and, and and how things were going on there they I guess we can kind of extrapolate that today of you know if you take um, youngsters uh, if you will and even talk to them about the late 1990s um, the you know the the lack of you know, everybody having a camera and a cell phone in their pocket and instant <laughs> right. communication and everything else, it, right. it'd be almost unfathomable to them. Yeah. Well, David Brooks, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. When this um, program, which we've recorded, uh, debuts on the Internet, it'll be uh, at uh, toward the end of May. Uh, by then, you're underway with uh, the 2022 season at the Schoharie Crossing State historic, historic site because, to some extent, your site, which is mainly outdoors, uh, depends on the warmer weather. Correct. Yeah, and we we kind of.
kind of align our, our quote-unquote visitor season to the operation of today's canal system. Uh, our visitor center will be open May to October. Uh, our hours for the exhibit area are Wednesday to Saturday from 10 to 1, and Sundays 1 to 4. See, we have special events and other operations going on, so you can always follow us on social media. But the grounds at the site uh, were stretched out over about three miles with a boat launch and picnic areas and historic canal features, and that's open from sunrise to sunset every single day. It just means that our, our open season is when we can be a little bit more active out there uh, in doing all the great things, paddle events, bicycling events, musical performances, uh, and walking tours, interpretation, school groups, making sure that people know uh, the wonderful history of the Mohawk Valley, particularly the Erie Canal. Well, David Brooks, uh, Education Director of Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site in Fort Hunter, thanks very much for joining us on the Historian's Podcast. It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.